Good afternoon and welcome. Uh, my name is Dean Reuter. I'm the director of the Federalist Society's practice groups, and I'm pleased to welcome you here today for our program on the Akaka Bill, uh, also known as the Native Hawaiian Government Reorganization Act. Uh, this program is sponsored by the Federalist Society's Civil Rights Practice Group, and I'm happy that so many of you are able to attend. Um, I do want to thank uh, Todd Gaziano and the Heritage Foundation for helping us promote this event and for helping us put it together, uh, and the members of our uh, Civil Rights Practice Group. My job uh, is merely to introduce the speakers, and I'm going to do that in the reverse order in which they'll speak. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to say a brief word about the format and about how we put this program together. Uh, I see a lot of uh, familiar faces in the audience, and you folks know that we strive, we the Federal Society strive to put on programs that present a variety uh, of viewpoints. And we did that in this case. There are some pretty stark lines drawn uh, around the, the Akaka bill, uh, proponents and opponents of the bill. Uh, we, we had no problem recruiting opponents of the bill uh, to our panel. Uh, and we asked no fewer than we asked well over 20 people uh, to speak up in favor of the bill. And uh, none were able to come today. Uh, so Joe Mattal has uh, graciously agreed to present that viewpoint uh, Although perhaps not very enthusiastically, I don't know. But um, as I said, I'll introduce the speakers in reverse order. Uh, Joe Mattal, uh, thank you for being here, is counsel to Senator Kyle on the Senate Judiciary Committee, where he has served since 2002. Uh, prior to that, he worked for former Senator Peter Fitzgerald. He has been in private practice with a law firm of Gibson Dunn uh, here in Washington, D.C., and clerked on the Alaska Supreme Court and in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, he, uh, perhaps maybe most relevantly, has a, an Alaska, a 1997 Alaska Law Review article entitled A Revisionist History of Indian Country. Joe, as I mentioned, will speak second. Uh, first, we're going to hear from Congressman Steve King. Congressman, thank you for being here. Uh, Congressman King is from Iowa. He is a lifelong Western Iowan. Uh, he operates or did operate his own construction business, which I understand now is being operated by your son. Uh, uh, he's been in Congress since 2002, where he serves on at least three committees, most notably for our purposes, the Judiciary Committee uh, and the Constitution Subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee, uh, which I think is most relevant for our purposes here today. Uh, please welcome Congressman King. Thank you very much. I, I so much appreciate the invitation to speak here. And uh, Appreciate the intellectual conversation around the table over lunch. Uh, if the uh, people that I've dined with are reflective of the intellect in this room, I can tell you I'm truly intimidated by the crowd here today. And uh, in a positive way, I want you to understand. And, and I'm here at the Federalist Society. I'd like to tell you that the, my presidential candidate was the only true Federalist in the race. I supported Fred Thompson. And uh, that for that is a big reason. But you'll, you'll know as uh, we wind this thing down towards my conclusion, and it will be that this is all anchored in the Constitution. And that's the basis by which we have opinions, and that's the basis by which we have to make decisions. And another component of this is that each of us take an oath to the Constitution. Each member of the House of Representatives, each member of the United States Senate, the President of the United States, of course, as do the justices and the federal courts, including the Supreme Court. We take that oath because we understand what the Constitution means, and we believe what it says, and we take an oath to the text of it. We take an oath, oath to the original intent, and I've never heard anybody put a little caveat in there that said, well, this, the Constitution as I think it might mean if it fits my purposes later on politically. Um, but that is what happens. And uh, this Hawaii, this Akaka bill, this Hawaiian issue, it's a hard thing to understand the motives. Um, but I believe that it is rooted in, and as we said here over lunch, I think it's rooted in the idea of multiculturalism, uh, race-based politics, the politics of victimization. And if you want to reel that back into history a ways, I'd go back to that era about 1919 till 1926 when Antonio Gramsci was the president of the Italian Communist Party. He had returned to Italy from a time with Lenin in, in Russia, part of the Bolshevik Revolution. And uh, in about 1926, Mussolini put him in jail. And there he wrote his prison notebooks. And if you read through that, 
and there are just a lot of details, you'll find that Gramsci's recommendation was that that the communist revolution, as philosophized and, and drafted by Karl Marx, could not succeed because just to pit the proletariat against the bourgeoisie didn't bring enough conflict, it didn't bring enough tension, it didn't bring enough power or conviction. So he recommended that that they seek to tear this fabric of our society apart piece by piece, to attack Western civilization, Western Christendom, um, piece by piece, and rip the fabric apart and replace it with something or nothing. He argued that the antithesis of the truth was as moral as the truth itself, that our moral values, our Judeo-Christian values, our Western civilization values of morality are no more moral than the antithesis because our moral values, he argued, were just a social construct designed by the people in power to stay in power and to expand their power. Now, I lay this out this way, and how do we get to Hawaiian? That's in the Hawaii bill, and I, this way. Because to understand the motives of the people on the other side, or they don't all know their, know their own motives, by the way. Some of them are just fellow travelers. And, but they are seeking to tear down this va- these values that have made this a great country. This is about identity politics. It's about victimization. It's about multiculturalism run amok. Now, that's the framework. But I wanted to frame it um, with a quote from Scalia. Which I assure you, um, I'm not going to do a lot of reading here. But this is, uh, this is a quote from, uh, from Justice Scalia, and it's in his, his uh, opinion in Adiran Contractors, which some of you will know about and I lived through. And uh, Justice Scalia writes, To pursue the concept of racial entitlement, even for the most admirable and benign of purposes, is to reinforce and preserve for future mischief the way of thinking that produced race slavery, race privilege, and race hatred. In the eyes of the government, we are just one race here. We are American. But the Akaka Bill is uh, it, it, there's some there's some basic facts to this. I think um, to lay this out first, and that is that there's a there's a trust in Hawaii that includes about 203,500 acres, and uh, they were set aside by statute, and it's now in the control, um, ultimately of the United States Congress, because we reserve the right to approve decisions made by the Hawaii, Hawaii General Assembly, the Hawaii state government. And then there's a, there's a board that controls the trust of those 203,000 acres. The, the idea behind the Akaka Bill is that Native Hawaiians should be able to control that trust and use the resources for their own good and their own purposes, even though there are four other reasons that the trust was established other than to be concerned about the benefits of Native Hawaiians. And they argue that the, the, the bill sets up a transitional kind of a provisional government for this trust and this entity and for the Native Hawaiian people. And the, and the people that would be on the board would be those that would have to qualify as having been scholars of Hawaiian history and proficient in the native Hawaiian language and presumably rooted in in the uh, bloodlines of the native Hawaiian people. But this ultimately, this bill would grant a status of quasi-citizenship to people who are identified by this board that would be formed who had one drop of native Hawaiian blood. Now, this might be 400,000 people uh, living all over the continental United States and as well as in Hawaii, and set them up so they can control the trust, and it's a, and it's a form of sovereignty. Now, there was, uh, they, they did, under their, under their former committee, allow for votes of only Native Hawaiian people, and that case went before the courts, and that was Rice versus Cayetano. And in that, in that Rice decision, the courts ruled that you couldn't have race-based voting, that it violated the 15th Amendment. That, and it violates everything we are as a people, that the idea of granting special privileges or denying those special privileges to people based upon their race is abhorrent to the American people and the American dream, the American philosophy, and abhorrent to our Constitution. And so the court threw out, or the court found on the side of the Constitution was Rice versus Cayetano, and at that time, the, um, <clears throat> the Hawaiian government made no claim to um, a special tribe. But this is uh, what's happened now is this is a retooling of that idea. The Akaka bill retools the idea that was thrown out by the Cayetano case, the Rice versus Cayetano case, and now tr- seeks to graft 
Native Hawaiians into the tribal laws of the United States. And the, uh, the tribal laws of the United States were established for Native American Indian tribes, and it says in the Constitution, Indian tribes, who have been, uh, who pre-existed our Constitution, who were organized politically, not exclusively ethnically, but politically, and they had a sovereignty that, that, they, uh, that was part of their governance system prior to the United States uh, being established prior to the Constitution. Those definitions of tribe um, do not apply to Native Hawaiians. They've never been a tribe. The history of them were that was that uh, they had they had different groups of people that lived on different islands, and they were a feudal system with warring factions. And the uh, Akaka Bill argues that these warring factions that were were unified in 1810 under uh, a single king by force somehow have established a tribe that that then that principle should supersede the sovereignty of the United States and it should also supersede the, um, the agreement that brought Hawaii into statehood. Um, so Indian tribes, by the way, aren't susceptible. Or they are exempt from the Constitution in uh, some areas, the first, fifth, and 14th Amendments of the Constitution, and then they're governed by the uh, Indian Civil Rights Act. This bill, the Sakaka bill, doesn't address, uh, doesn't bring Native Hawaiians under the Indian Civil Rights Act. It just seeks to bring them in under the shoehorn effect of trying to claim that Native Hawaiians are, uh, are a tribe. But, in fact, the history of Hawaii, since, um, and since discovered by, uh, by Captain Cook in 1778, has been about it's been it's been inclusive. It's been a very much an integrated society. Even uh, even when it was under a monarchy, there were many Caucasians that served on the on the cabinet of the of the late queen, for example, Liliuokalani. I can never say that right, so I, but I tried it. And uh, in fact, the Attorney General of Hawaii in the latter part of the 1800s was an American Caucasian American. Uh, there's very much a tradition of integration in the Hawaii in any form of Hawaiian government from the first time that Westerners set foot on the soils of Hawaii, and that has been the case. And the tradition of Hawaii has been far more about integration, and they've been very proud to be the leaders in the melting pot uh, throughout their history. And yet. The Akaka Bill seeks to claim that there's an existing sovereignty that goes back to 1810 that, that um, ended at the end of the 19th century. A shorter history of monarchy for Hawaii than there is a history of, uh, of being underneath the American government. And, and uh, they were protectorate from 1898. They became a territory in 1900. They became a state in 1959. And yes, I remember that. And uh, all of that, that hundred and, uh, what do we add up now, 110 years of American government over Hawaii is a lot longer and a lot more solid a tradition than any, any monarchy that existed. Plus, when did we ever recognize a monarchy as being something that we should revert back to? But yet, the Akaka Bill seeks to recognize a monarchy and does not prohibit the future-formed Hawaiian sub-government, the native Hawaiian sub-government, from going to a monarchy. There's nothing in the bill that precludes that. And, and, and so, if they are able to form... And it would form a border commission, and it identifies this border commission has to be people that are of Hawaiian blood, and they would uh, then go out and identify the roles of uh, Native Hawaiians and compile this role, and and so they think about 400,000. They would then submit this the role the the membership list to the Secretary of the Interior, and uh, if the Secretary of the Interior refused to file it for some reason, they would file it anyway, and they would proceed forward with their their native Hawaiian sub-government, and begin to control the assets, and it would position them to make decisions upon civil and criminal court and set up the situation where we could have a massive amount of litigation against the United States, against the state of Hawaii, for control of the resources. And some of these resources are offshore. Some of these resources are under the water. And some of them are not very well defined. All of this to get their hands on some assets that are now being managed by a board in Hawaii and overseen by the Hawaii State Legislature with the veto power of the United States Congress, which I don't understand. I understand we've not intervened that Hawaii has run this. They actually have a representative government in Hawaii, and they are a state. And by the way, we fought a civil war over this irrevocable union. Um, and so to separate any, any subdivision of the United States and hand it over to a group, no matter what their claim, upsets 
the very result of the of the Civil War, e pluribus unum. We don't break up. We come together. That's America. And so what happens um, is if if this bill passes and should the president not sign it or if we get a Democrat president and they bring it back through again and a Democrat president signs this bill, you will see uh, native Hawaiians establish themselves in the state of Hawaii and with influence all across this country as a sovereignty within a sovereignty. And they will control assets and they will bring litigation. And they will decide who gets to vote in their sovereignty. If anyone gets to vote at all, they could be a monarchy. I don't think they will because there's no chieftains in waiting. There's no government in waiting. There's no tribe in waiting. Um, but if they, if they establish it as a democracy, and there's no promise that they do, then, then you will see that only people of Hawaiian blood are allowed to vote and control assets. And they will be able to bring grievances in their own court against us. And they'll be able to bring grievances in our court against us as well. In the end, this brings out the multiculturalism side of this. It divides America. And what it does is it sets the scenario for any separate group, group in America, separatist group in America that can gain the political clout to be able to press forward on the same argument. Think of the Acadians in Louisiana, those Cajuns that came down from, from Canada they have the same claim. They have, a, they have a distinct ethnicity. They have a distinct language. They have a distinct culture. And they've been there for so long that you can call them the indigenous people of Louisiana. And so if they could bring this, press this claim and claim to real estate and a claim to benefits and a claim to perhaps being discriminated against. But the thing that I'm even more concerned about is um, that the southwestern part of the United States. And the, uh, I mean, we've all heard the term Aslan. And the streets have been full within the last two years of people that march and chant Aslan. They argue, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And now they want their country back in better condition than when it left them, is what they say. This lays the parameter that allows for Aslan. And that would be the southwestern part of the United States um, being claimed to by the descendants, some descendants of indigenous people that may or may not have lived there. Everything about this bill is wrong. It subdivides the people. It's not about unity. It's about division. It pits us against each other. Ninety-five percent of Hawaiians voted for the statehood bill. They had a referendum then. And about, that, was, that was about being a giant melting pot, not about being a subdivided Hawaii. There was going to be no recognition of indigenous Hawaiian people as part of the agreement with statehood. That was, that was part of the discussion, and 95 percent of the Hawaiians agreed with that today. They see assets, they see resources, they see political power, and they're following their mantra of the multiculturalism run amok. That's what the Akaka Bill is. And uh, I am surprised that there aren't any more members of Congress that actually recognize how dangerous this is. But this is dangerous to the unity of America. It's not just handing over some resources in Hawaii. It's about the future of the United States of America. What kind of a country will, be, will we be? Are we going to be... Um, a nation that is a nation of one people, and are we going to defend individual rights, or are we going to confer group rights on people based upon one drop of blood? That is an abhorrent thought, and I'd ask us all to rise up and resist that concept, and we're all going to fight together to kill the Akaka Bill. And Joe is not going to give you a lot of passion on the other side of this, but he'll give you the balance of the details that I missed in my general presentation. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Joe Mattal with, uh, uh, I'm an aide to Senator Kyle on the uh, Judiciary Committee. Is this coming through okay? And um, Senator Kyle's probably been the principal opponent of this bill in the Senate for about six years, ever since uh, Phil Graham left and handed it over to Senator Kyle. Um, first, I'd like to thank the Federalists for holding this. I think it's both disappointing and telling that although many opponent, or many proponents of this bill were contacted, no one would show up to, uh, to defend this bill. Secondly, I'd like to ask someone, maybe Gene, to uh, let me know when 10 minutes is up. Um, I'm flattered that uh, you're allowing me to speak right after a congressman, and I certainly don't want to uh, overstay my welcome up here. Um, you know, uh, since uh, no one who... Uh, purportedly supports this bill has shown up to make the arguments for it. Um, I'll, I'll give you in a nutshell. Well, first of all, let me tell you, I, I've been working on this issue for six years now, and I have a pretty good idea of why um, 
you know, where the support for this bill comes from. The, the bill was first introduced in the Senate right around the time, shortly after the Rice v. Cayetano decision came down. Rice v. Cayetano struck down certain Native Hawaiian voting restrictions on these uh, trusts that are administered in Hawaii for the, uh, for the benefit of Hawaiians. And um, part of the... Um, you know, part of what's driving this bill is the desire by uh, uh, folks to protect the benefits that Native Hawaiians already have. There are you know, over 150 federal statutes that dole out some type of a federal benefit to Native Hawaiians, health care, education, um, housing subsidies. There's even certain telecommunications lines that are being built just for uh, um, Native Hawaiians. And uh, there's a view of, you know, respectable legal view that uh, tribal designation will be the equivalent of kind of a constitutional kryptonite that will make all those equal protection challenges go away and, you know, defeat the 14th Amendment and protect all these, um, all these programs from any kind of a legal challenge. And the, the second, uh, and, you know, I, I've read a lot of stuff from proponents of this bill, and the second thing that's clearly driving this is, is just racial separatism, just uh, people who want non-Native Hawaiians out of Hawaii and back to the way things were, you know, before contact with the West. Um, as to the arguments made in defense of the bill, you know, there are really two arguments that are respectable, that, you know, reasonable people without a strong view on the bill might entertain. Uh, the first argument is that, the, that this bill just gives Native Hawaiians what other Indians have, what Indians in the lower 48 have. And the second argument is that this will bring closure. This will heal old wounds and allow people to get past the hurts of the past and, um, you know, really kind of heal Hawaiian society. Um, as to the first argument, it's really important to address this one. Um, you know, the, 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 the bill doesn't give Native Hawaiians what, um, you know, what other Indians have. First of all, you know, and the, the congressman touched on this point, but it's important to point out this bill isn't, you know, the reasons for opposing this bill aren't just the standard conservative arguments against affirmative action. This bill isn't just giving out some kind of benefit, job, contract. This is about government. This bill literally authorizes a constitutional convention to create a government from, uh, um, for Native Hawaiians whose membership is basically going to be restricted to Native Hawaiians. Native Hawaiians are defined as a lineal descendant you know, of anyone who is a Native Hawaiian. And then it authorizes that new government, once it elects officers, to negotiate with the federal government and the state of Hawaii for the transfer of land, for the transfer of, in fact, let me just, uh, you know, people don't do this nearly often enough. Let me just read to you the part of the bill that talks about what this, um, you know, what these negotiations are going to be like. Again, this is once the Native Hawaiian government has been elected, has been set up a constitution, uh, that constitution has been ratified, and then they've elected officers. So the government's in place now. That's all in um, Section 7C, subsection C of the bill, a very powerful subsection that uh, sets up all government there. Never seen that much packed into one subsection before. And then uh, moving on to Section 8, uh, subsection B is negotiations. And this is literally what the bill says. Upon reaffirmation of special political legal relationship, et cetera, et cetera, the United States and the state of Hawaii may enter into negotiations with the Native Hawaiian governing entity uh, designed to lead, lead to an agreement addressing such areas as subparagraph A, the transfer of lands, natural resources, and other assets and the protection of existing rights. Subparagraph B, the exercise of governmental authority over any transferred lands, natural resources, et cetera. Subparagraph C, the exercise of civil and criminal jurisdiction. It's pretty much everything. I mean, that's all governmental power. And subsection D, the delegation of governmental powers and authorities to the Native Hawaiian governing entity by the United States and the state of Hawaii. This is, you know, this is secession. This is setting up a new government within Hawaii, transferring some, some chunk of Hawaii to that government and deciding what governmental powers, what jurisdiction is going to be transferred uh, to that government. Now, here's why, uh, you know, going back to, you know, the arguments for this bill, this just gives Native Hawaiians what Indians, you know, in, in the lower 48 have. Look, not everyone with, and, and again, the bill defines Native Hawaiians literally as a lineal descendant of um, someone who is originally Native Hawaiian, originally part of the, the uh, you know, pre-Western contact um, Hawaii. And that's about 20% of Native Hawaiians. About 20% of Native Hawaiians have some Native Hawaiian blood. Um, you know, look, the, you know, it should be obvious to everyone, not everyone in the United States who has some native blood or even a good, you know, chunk of native blood is allowed to form their own government. I mean, that's simply not the way things work. 
Now, almost all the Western states have substantial Indian reservations, and those reservations have a history. Um, they were largely created um, in, the, in the couple of decades after the war with Mexico. Prior to the war with Mexico, Indians were you know, largely transferred, you know, their lands were purchased and they were removed forcibly or not to the West. After the war with Mexico, it became clear there isn't just this big yonder, you know, where the Indians will be pushed. And they, the federal government started to think about settling Indians. At the time, you know, this is a time when the United States still a time when the United States still practiced slavery. Um, people just didn't conceive of um, these large Indian communities melding in with the rest of the United States. So they set up, you know, reservations, separate jurisdictions. And when those areas out west entered the Union, uh, virtually every state in the West has a line in its uh, state constitution, the State Enabling Act, saying the state won't have jurisdiction over Indian lands. These were preserved as separate entities. It's um, not dissimilar to what happened in the South Pacific, for example, various places that the United States took control over during World War II. Some of those were not completely incorporated into the U.S., and that's what, that's what happened with the reservations. And so literally, the, the tribes that are out in the West, the reservation tribes, the real Indian tribes, the federal government didn't create them. It, it just never extinguished them and never fully brought them under, under state jurisdiction. And, um, you know, to, to, uh, you know there, there, it's a big leap to, to go from saying, well, you're not obligated to ex extinguish tribal governments once their area is surrounded by a state, to saying, oh, by the way, you can later unscramble the egg and recreate them. Ohio, uh, Hawaii entered the Union in 1959. It was fully incorporated in the United States. There was no jurisdictional exception. No, no um, you know, pre-Hawaii state government was preserved in any form. And to go back now and say 20% of the population of Hawaii can be citizens of the separate government, and, you know, if there's one reason why this, uh, you know, why going retroactively creating such a government is completely illogical, it's the, um, the inherent nature of Indian tribes. American Indian tribes are extra-constitutional. They're regarded as not deriving from the U.S. Constitution, and one consequence of that is they're not bound by the U.S. Constitution. Now, since, the, you know, since even the congressman used a few notes, I assume as a staffer, I can too. And I'd like to quote to you from um, some U.S. Supreme Court decisions. This is from a case called Santa Clara Pueblo. As separate sovereigns pre-existing the Constitution, tribes have historically been regarded as unconstrained by those constitutional provisions framed specifically as limits on federal or state authority. That's from Santa Clara Pueblo. That's a case decided in 1978. You know, this stuff is still good law. And I, I like the way they refer to that here. Those constitutional provisions framed specifically as limitations on federal, state authority, federal and state authority. That's the Bill of Rights. I mean, they're, they're talking about everything here. None of that stuff applies by its own authority to, to Indian tribes. They're an extra-constitutional entity outside of our Constitution there. You know, again, the best analogy is the governments in the South Pacific that we've not fully incorporated into the United States that aren't a state and that still have some aspects of a, of a foreign government. That's what these tribal governments are. Um, as recently as uh, 2001, Nevada v. Hicks, um, the Supreme Court said, it has been understood for more than a century that the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment do not of their own force apply to Indian tribes. Um, you know, there it is. I mean, when we're talking about creating an Indian tribe, if we're going to talk about creating an Indian tribe from scratch through federal legislation, and, you know, this is what it is, you know, S310, just like any approach bill filled with earmarks. Um, you know, this has been introduced in the U.S. Senate. You know, when you talk about creating this, you're literally talking about Congress authorizing the creation of a new government within an existing state that's not bound by the Bill of Rights. I mean, if there's, you know, a recipe for a constitutional violation that's stronger than that, you know, I can't think of it. So anyway, that's, you know, my response to why, uh, you know, the, the, this bill doesn't just give uh, other Indian, uh, Native Hawaiians what other Indians in the lower 48 have. And, and by the way, just using blood quantum, you know, a majority of the state of Oklahoma, for example, probably has some Indian blood. You know, there's a lot of Indian blood in the South. A lot of Amer African Americans have some Indian blood. The idea that every one of those persons could, you know, be authorized to set up an extra constitutional government, just, you know, get a bill through Congress, you know, tack it onto an approach bill, which they've tried to do with this in the past, is it, it, should, it should be an obviously ridiculous, um, you know, proposition to everyone here. Um, the second uh, uh, argument, again, for the bill is that this will bring closure. This will allow people to get past the wounds 
of the past. Um, and the, the, the uh, response here is simple. It won't. Uh, these types of things, legitimizing race-based grievances and racial separatism, never brings closure. All it does is whet the appetite for more things like this. It legitimizes these grievances. It makes them respectable. Um, an example I'd use is the in, uh, Indian Commerce Commissions or um, uh, Indian Claims Commissions. Has anyone here ever heard of the Indian Claims Commissions? Um, these, are, these were authorized by Congress in 1946, operated for about three decades until 1978. I saw, uh, let the record reflect, I saw one hand uh, go up remembering these things. But um, these were the things that were going to settle all Indian land claims. We'll hold these commissions, decide what land was taken from Indians, how much it's worth, Congress will pay it off, and we'll finally get rid of all these claims about Indian land. Well, you know, the, you know, this supposedly ended in 1978. The period since 1978 has probably been the most intense period of Indian land claims litigation uh, in U.S. history. You know, when you, you know, when, when you acknowledge these these types of grievances and legitimize them, again, all you do is whet the appetite for more of this. You you legitimize that form of thinking, and that's particularly true when you're dealing with separatism with the idea of, of creating a separate government. If the federal government says this is okay, this is a good way to think about these types of things, um, you know, all that does is undercut, frankly, the position of moderates in Hawaii, of people who are saying, you know, can't we all get along? Can't we live as one community under one government and under one set of laws? If even the federal government is saying, no, no, people have a right to be separate, you know, that's the, the, you know, that's the right path. All we're doing is... You know, let me put it this way. The last thing it's going to bring is closure. And uh, if I have a few more minutes, I'd like to touch on um, on one point. You know, set aside all the legal theories, why this is unconstitutional, why it's ahistorical. You know, let me just tell you why, assuming, you know, U.S. history starts now and we're just going forward and that's all we're going to think about, why this is disastrous policy. And the reason is that if there's ever a recipe for stewing racial conflict in an area, it's, it's creating, creating separate jurisdictions and separate governments for people who are living right next to each other. And the best example, frankly, of what problems we can expect this to create is what we've seen with some of the Indian reservations around the country um, where, uh, you know, a separate tribal jurisdiction is right next to a non-Indian jurisdiction. Literally, you know, a tribal government, you know, which is the closest model, obviously, to what we can expect out of this, is not bound by state or local laws. This means that, um, you know, tribal government, for example, isn't bound by state tax laws, state business regulations, state environmental laws, sewage regulations. And it literally means, you know, th there are cases, um, you know, just in trying to kind of project the impact of this bill, I've done research into, well, what, what kinds of problems has this created? And remember, you know, it's 20 percent of Native Hawaiians in a pretty small place. This isn't going to be some far outpost of Hawaii that's separated from the rest of Hawaii where you have a separate government. These people are going to be living right next to each other. And, um, you know, th there are cases out there in the past. There, there's a great case from um, around 2000 where an Indian in California who owned about 40 acres decided to set up his own trailer park um, on his land. It was a separate jurisdiction. Neither the county or the state had jurisdiction. And within about a year, he had 4,000 people living on this piece of land. And I think it was the Martinez-Torres Band Reservation, and the county couldn't do anything about it. You know, they had a jerry-rigged electrical system, above-ground sewer lines, and the state literally could do nothing to stop this. Um, eventually, the EPA came in and shut the whole thing down because the feds do have jurisdiction, but most of these laws that regulate the way neighbors live with each other, zoning laws that, you know, you know make it, uh, you know, possible for us to accommodate each other are state and local laws. And, you know, if you have a system where, you know, a native Hawaiian living right down the street or within a mile of non-native Hawaiians can operate a business and doesn't have to pay taxes on the products he sells, doesn't have to abide by the same business regulations, by the same environmental codes, doesn't have to be regulated by state law determining where the sewage from the customers from his business goes. You know, this, this is going to be a recipe for permanent racial conflict in Hawaii, for making people not get along. There's nothing that creates resentment and division more than telling people they're not bound by the same laws. That guy, when he sells cigarettes or alcohol or gasoline from his convenience store, he doesn't have to pay the same taxes as you do, and therefore he can undercut you in price and, and, still, make a, and, and still make a lot more money than you're making. Um, you know, I've even come across cases where Indians literally had a garbage dump on their land, and it ran by a river and garbage was floating off into the river, and there was nothing the state or local government can do about it. 
There are cases where a tribe has operated a chicken processing plant. The stench obviously crosses jurisdictional boundaries. Um, and it's these things, zoning laws, nuisance laws, that make it possible for all of us to get along. And that's literally what you're undoing here. And that's, um, you know, often the argument against this bill, is it about 10 minutes yet? Um, you know, often the, uh, sorry, I get uh, loose track of time up here. Um, the, um, often the argument made a, um, you know, for, for this bill that will, you know, we'll get along, you know, that, that will bring closure. Just think about if we literally have competing legal regimes and jurisdictions for people of different races and all the natural frictions that will cause during daily life. That's probably the worst, you know, aspect of this. And, um, you know, those who oppose this bill, often the argument is made, oh, this won't be good for Native Hawaiians. We shouldn't be shy about thinking about the interests of non-Native Hawaiians you know, in Hawaii um, either. I mean, this is going to have a, a terrible impact on everyone who's living around um, this government. But um, anyway, I've gone way over my time, and um, uh, we'll open this up for, um, you know, for questions at this point. Thank you. Uh, Congressman, did you have any uh, additional thoughts at this point? Or, or, okay. Why don't you go ahead, then? There's, uh, there's one point that I, I wanted to um, make that I overlooked in the earlier presentation. First is that you know, I, I've talked to some length about how philosophically wrong this is. And Joe's talked to you about how philosophically wrong it is. We talked about how constitutionally it's wrong and exemptions from the Constitution. But here's another piece to lay out. And that is uh, we're uh, 125 or 40 or 50 years from the beginnings of, I'm going to call it the American apartheid system, the, the Native American reservation system in the United States. And there is no one that has a plan to take us anywhere other than more of the same. And is there anything going on there other than the gaming industry that we would like to replicate? But that's what this Akaka bill does. It replicates the American apartheid system in Hawaii. And I believe that someday we're going to have to be confronted with a resolution to this American apartheid system. I believe it's unjust to uh, have people living in enclaves that are culturally and sometimes legally and at least by assets bound to that property. And we've looked at what goes on there, the, uh, the drugs, the alcohol, the teenage pregnancies, the, the, look along the, the crosses along the road going in and out of the reservations. Um, I represent two reservations, the Omaha and the Winnebago, and I have now for, I think, in my 12th year of this. And uh, it is, you can go over there and good people, and it's a, it's a great trip, and you can learn a lot about the culture. But I'd be kind of sad if I thought that my chick kids were going to grow up in that environment and not be able to reach out into the broader world, not have that the cultural support of the educational and the medicine and the healthcare systems that we have. I, um, you know, I made the point here at the table over lunch. What did the liberals think we should have done when Columbus discovered the Western Hemisphere? Just draw a line around it and say this is now a preserve for the indigenous people and we should be hands off? Haven't they benefited tremendously, as all of us have, from the benefits of Western civilization, from the science, the math, the technology, from the economy, for the free market capitalism, from our constitutional foundation? I mean, to measure blessings of the world, human blessings to the world, that's it. And I would want that for my children, no matter where they might be born, no matter where they might be raised. And I think we're holding a lot of people out of this because politically we don't want to confront this reservation system we have in the United States. And I believe that one day there will be the kind of, the kind of strife that brings it forward where we have, to, we have to deal with it. One of the ways to do that would be simply to say, if you're a member of a tribe, whatever, however, they, however their lists are within real tribes, not Native Hawaiians, but real tribes, then you have a certain share of the assets, incorporate it, and let those members of that tribe then take their shares and either buy their, buy their family members or sell theirs, market them on the marketplace, and let them manage it like a business. There's a way to get this evolved back down to where we do not have the kind of situations like we have in some of the reservations, most of the reservations here in the United States. It's kind of the third rail. Nobody wants to touch it, but it's the American apartheid system. I do not want to replicate it in Hawaii. Thank you, Congressman. Um, we're going to have questions from the floor now, but uh, before we do that, 
um, let me ask a question and maybe play devil's advocate. I would observe first that uh, we maybe asked too much of Joe. I think you used maybe about 60 seconds of your time actually arguing in favor of the bill. Um, so let me ask a couple a couple of questions. That's all it took. Well, let me ask a couple of questions uh, kind of down, down that road. Um, f- first of all, is it true that all the powers that you assert would be collected uh, if, if the act passed really aren't um, aren't given with passage of the act. The power to negotiate for those powers, in other words, is given. Is that correct? Um, that's, that's the first question. Uh, and can those powers be constrained through that negotiation process? Um, and then second, if this does pass, uh, of course, there'll be litigation on the constitutionality of this. Um, Chief, then lawyer John Roberts argued uh, in favor of Cayetano, uh, putting a lot of stock in the fact that uh, there was a congressionally recognized trust involved, so this was a special circumstance. I wonder if you'd want to, either of you would want to take a, a guess at how some of that litigation would turn out. Joe. Uh, see, what was the first question again? The first question is whether or not the powers that you mentioned uh, w- would really uh, obtain to the, to, the, to the government. You, you know, there's a you know, this question was actually, uh, you know, tested. Well, how far would this go? Often when proponents of this bill are challenged with the idea that it could lead to a monarchy or a government that's, you know, not constrained by the Bill of Rights, um, you know, God knows what kind of, uh, you know, creature this, this thing could be. And there, there are no real limits, you know, on the face of the bill. The House of Representatives actually tested this uh, pretty well. When the, uh, when the bill came up on the House floor, uh, a Republican introduced a, uh, a motion to recommit, which is basically the one type of uh, way to force a floor vote that you have uh, when you're in the minority in the House of Representatives. And the motion to recommit just said, send this bill back with, to the committee with instructions that whatever government is created by this bill shall be uh, bound by the U.S. Constitution and its Bill of Rights and federal anti-discrimination laws and that there will be a cause of action like uh, Section 1983 to enforce these rights to guarantee that could be enforced. Seemed like, you know, Bill of Rights, people, you know, like the Bill of Rights, right? You know, everyone here is for it. The motion to recommit was defeated. Uh, it was, and virtually every Democrat in the House and a good chunk of the Republicans who, um, for you know, deals of their own support this bill, voted against it and defeated that motion to recommit. The uh, backers of this bill made perfectly clear that uh, they have no interest in pre-binding these negotiations and guaranteeing that they... Uh, they, uh, um, you know, that, that the eventual government will be limited by anything like the Bill of Rights. You know, they, you know, they wouldn't want that to get uh, into the way. And uh, I've forgotten your second question. Justice Roberts' question. Um, or Congressman, do you want to respond to that first question? Or? I, I would. I would. Um, I, I just wanted to add to this that not only was it clear that the Akaka Bill was a, exempt from the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, but it also has an ex- it also has an exemption uh, to uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, and uh, I'd add also the philosophy of Proposition 209, California's constitutional amendment. But no discrimination based upon race, creed, color, religion, ethnicity, national origin, whatever those specific strings are within Title VII or Proposition 209, and the affirmative this is this is affirmative action leveraged into this in the fashion of special rights for people based upon race. So I don't. I wanted to also bring up the apology resolution. I don't think we mentioned that that uh, that the uh, 1993 apology resolution that was uh, passed by Congress is uh, is the foundation for some of this logic in the Sakaka Bill, where Congress apologized to Native Hawaiians for um, essentially intervening in their political affairs, uh, for the for the federal government intervening in political affairs. Now there's several different different versions of history, but regardless, the foundation is now that Congress has apologized. Now we have to follow through and give them a sovereignty within a sovereignty. And um, I would uh, argue and reject that no Congress can uh, bind a subsequent Congress. Whatever they might have decided in 1993 doesn't have any bearing upon the decisions made by this Congress here in 2008. So that's a couple of loose ends out there to be cleaned up. You know, if I could just add one thing to the, uh, uh, the congressman's remarks, lest you think that the need to apply the Equal Protection Clause to uh, tribes or to this governing entity is, uh, you know, is, is a minor thing. There are cases of outrageous discrimination by Indian tribes. Indian tribes, you know, their members, you know, have some Indian blood, but, you know, they're intermarried with other ethnic groups. And there are two cases from the 1990s from different tribes in Oklahoma, the, the Cherokees and the Seminoles, 
who basically expelled their black members in the 1990s for various reasons. In one case, it was because the black members had aligned with a different political faction that was, that was defeated. In another case, the tribe came into a lot of money from a settlement with the federal government, and they just didn't want to share. And, you know, the, you kick out the black members, and there's more, you know, you know, you don't have to divide the pie by as many pieces. Uh, in the case of the um, Seminoles, the black members had been part of the tribe since the 18th century and were actually moved with the, – the black Seminoles were moved with the other Seminoles – from Florida in the 1840s to Oklahoma. And, in the, and the decision to kick out the black members was made in the 1990s. These groups had lived together um, on the reservation for 150 years by this point, but when it came to dividing up money, um, they kicked them out. And I actually have a quote somewhere here from one of the, uh, this is just too good not to share, from one of the tribal members. This may actually be the Cherokees rather than the Seminoles. When he was asked, this is one of the chiefs of the tribe, the Seminoles, when he was asked, why they didn't feel why they weren't enforcing treaties that that they signed after the Civil War that required them to treat their black members equally, and this is what he said. Uh, uh, this is uh, this is from uh, the uh, uh, let's see, uh, well, it's from the Chicago Tribune, April fourth, two thousand two, and uh, this is the chief's explanation. We recognize blacks as people who needed a right to participate because the government said that's the way it'll be, said Chief Kenneth Chambers, the, uh, the tribe's top leader. In 1866, we said, we got the crap kicked out of us fighting for the South, so man, we'll do what you all tell us. That was their argument for why they don't have to abide by this, that this is just something that was forced on us after the Civil War. You know, not a, you know, something, you know, I couldn't see anyone, not an argument I could see anyone making with a straight face in public in the United States since at least before the, you know, since the 1950s. But this was their argument for it, and they got away with it. The black members in both of these cases sued, and in both cases it went up to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the court said, stop, the tribe has sovereign immunity, you can't sue them in the first place, and in any event, they're not bound by federal dis anti-discrimination laws. This stuff has happened. Uh, not applying the Equal Protection Clause to tribes will have real consequences. Okay. Oh, the, the John um, Roberts question. Um, well, why don't we take a couple questions from the floor, and if you want to come back to that, that's fine. Are the questions uh, – uh, yeah, we have a wireless mic, so if you wait for the microphone, please. What would be the uh, dispute resolution uh, mechanism within the bill for someone who wanted to challenge uh, a determination that they weren't a native Hawaiian, for instance? You know, this is uh, – I'm the one who's supposed to be, you know, the staffer. I'm supposed to be uh, buried in the details of the bill. And, you know, I really don't think there is one. It, it's uh, the bill creates a, um, well, it, it creates a board early on. It's, uh, you know, wonderful bureaucraties. Um, there isn't one. Yeah, the bill literally, it starts out with a commission that creates the role of who's eligible. That goes to the Native Hawaiian Government uh, Interim Governing Council. And then the final entity is the Native Hawaiian, um, you know, governing entity. And um, according to Stephen Duffield in the background, there is no dispute re resolution mechanism for that. It's, it's they would just say thumbs up or thumbs down. Yes, and, and traditionally the rule for other Indian tribes, by the way, is Indian tribes have absolute discretion to decide who's a tribal member. I've seen cases in California where, again, a tribe, you know, is uh, tr trying to tighten their membership criteria now that they've come into money, you know, gambling money, where um, a group of members actually – um, dug up an ancestor and did a DNA test to prove that they were descendants of this woman who was clearly a tribal member. And the DNA test came back one in, you know, four quadrillion chance that they're not descendants. And the tribe said, not good enough. You know, there's still a one in four quadrillion chance and you're not tribal members and go away. You're not getting out of our money, you know, any of our money. walk on the same basis of logic. Yeah. And um, I'm oh, sorry, sorry. Here, Joe. I just really add another thing to that, that the tribal council rules in a lot of the reservations, and that would be the similar thing, I would think. And I know from um, the, the introduction we, in the construction business, when we bid work on the reservations, we know that if the tribal council decides not to pay us, they just don't pay us. And if we want to appeal, then we go to the tribal council with our appeal. I mean, it's tautological. And there's, there's no getting into federal court to challenge these types of decisions. No federal court is going to hear a case challenging tribal membership. Other questions? Yeah, Wait for the microphone. You, you touched on us maybe a little bit, but I, I wonder what, uh, to what degree in general, uh, with, with the, with the, with the uh, 
Native Americans, you know, there was a, you know, a, a good bit of feeling of having been very, very seriously mistreated in a, in a variety of ways, and that led to certainly to some of the treaties and certainly to reactions today. What is the general feeling about uh, in in Hawaii, in, in Hawaii with with uh, was 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 is there really that the same type of feeling as there would be with uh, Native Americans, or is it is it something quite is it something quite different historically? Or do do, do you know, ne- neither of you? I don't know if either of you necessarily know this, but I thought I'd throw out the question. I can tell you, I debated Neil Abercrombie on this for about ninety minutes behind closed doors uh, last year, and um, he would argue that there are Native Hawaiians that that live in. Uh, separate regions and similar housing and that they essentially have some enclaves and that there's resentment there because he believes that their their children don't have the same quality of education and maybe don't have the same kind of opportunities because of some subliminal uh, discrimination. Uh, most of the material that I read and most of the input that I get says the exact opposite, that this is the most integrated multiracial society in the United States and it goes back very deep. Um, some of the statistics would show about 6,800 uh, uh, they would be, I call them pure blood, pure blood native Hawaiians. And uh, of those, about 75% by one statistic and 50% by another intermarry outside their race. Uh, so I just did a quick little math on that and the integration level of that. Uh, you do a century of, of intermarriage, really a couple dozen left out of that group. So I think there's a tremendous amount of integration that goes on. I think, and I don't, I don't know of that tension that you would feel on the streets or in the society, but I imagine it's what you look for. You find what you look for. Yes. Wasn't there also a deceptive and fraudulent history uh, behind the bill? And to that extent, wasn't there um, evidence that they were actually concealing broad-based American, Hawaiian, Republican, emancipative civic educational progress of Charles and Pauahi Bishop? who visited the United States in 1875 during the first Civil Rights Act and participated in that civil emancipative progress of scientifically progressive, technologically advantaging success of all race, color, and creed. Isn't it uh, significant then that uh, today is Lincoln's birthday and this is being held to really respect that tradition of his passing the Emancipation Proclamation the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment policies that were giving freedom to all people, whether of race, color, and creed, respecting that tradition of equality of emancipation. And uh, wouldn't you say that to the extent that, uh, according to Bruce Fine, a judicial uh, expert, uh, I believe that uh, he had analyzed the uh, situation also to identify that uh, under the pre-constitutional protective policies, pre-Mahele, Great Mahele of uh, um, 1848, that there was a two-tiered system in which Hawaiian commoners were really in subject slavery to the royal ali'i. If a commoner would walk in the shadow of an ali'i, they could be put to death. They were usually clubbed to create that fear-based subjection uh, with you the world class. You want to take this one, Congressman? So to that extent, <laughs> yeah. the idea of slavery, the contrast of slavery, of course, uh, in you the know, Civil I, War. I, I would just say that there are a lot of interesting debates about Hawaiian history, and um, you know there are strong arguments on both sides of the 1893 overthrow, whether that was good or bad for Hawaii. But... Um, and this is debated a lot in Hawaii among the people interested in this issue, but the only history that should matter for our purposes is 1959. In 1959, Hawaii voted overwhelmingly to become a state, including Native Hawaiians, who voted overwhelmingly to enter the Union under one jurisdiction with no separate racial or extra-constitutional governments preserved, and that should end the inquiry at this point. Um, my favorite line on this issue is from the... Um, United States Supreme Court in a case called Texas v. White from 1868 that was debating the validity. Of, it was a case involving the validity of certain debts incurred by the Confederate government of Texas and whether, whether those debts were legitimate turned on whether that government was legitimate. And the Supreme Court simply said, ours is an indestructible union composed of indestructible states. And we fought a civil war over, very, over this very issue, and that's closed the issue. After 1959, once, we, once Hawaii entered the union on that footing, there's really... 
you know, there's really no space for argument anymore. Um, and what happened in the past, um, frankly, doesn't matter after that. Uh, yes. Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute. Um, Mr. Murtala, you and, and Steve Duffield and others have done uh, a workmanlike job on this issue. And my question is, why has, haven't you convinced all of the Republican caucus, certainly, and any of the, of the Democratic caucus? Well, it's, it's really the member's job to do that, right? Uh, <laughs> Not at all. The lobby. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I really can't talk about various members' reasons for um, you know, voting the way they do on this bill. Uh, you know, all I can say is on, on the Democratic side, it's viewed heavily as a Hawaii issue and um, something the Hawaii senators want, and there's broad deference uh, given to the Hawaii senators. And on our side, you know, different members have different reasons for voting the way they do. Uh, one thing, it'd be, um, <clears throat> there's uh, Tom Cole, his posture, he's, he's one of the Native Americans in our, in our Congress and in our conference, and he's postured himself in, from Oklahoma in favor of this bill. And he and I have debated this bill before the Republican Study Committee and in other places. But um, there, there's that component. So just the voice of Tom Cole in there causes those undecided Republicans to think there must be something that has merit in this. And another one is the part that is uh, not a revelation to most of you and maybe not any of you, but the idea that being right on principle doesn't get you much in today's world. Uh, when I first went into public life, I believed that if I was right on principle, I'd just make a principled argument and therefore logical principle people would fall in behind me. And, uh, you know, I can't remember actually when that ever happened. Um, <laughs> But what it did do is the people that are with you on principle will be there anyway, and it can give you the energy to find another way to skin the cat, so to speak. Uh, but this has been divided a little bit that way. It's uh, the political power is part of the basis of it, and the political influence is part of it, and they have set about building that influence together. And one of them is that uh, the Hawaii representatives seem to have an allegiance with the Alaska representatives for reasons which we can speculate, but, of course, don't know for sure. Uh, however, uh, there, the odds may be improved if we have a native Hawaiian bill uh, for us to be able to tap into some resources up in the, along the North Slope. So these little pieces, uh, some are rumor, some are fact, uh, they are tied together in a kind of a giant mosaic um, jigsaw puzzle of how you get things done. And these are arranged in a way not to the favor of the Constitution or the uh, longevity of this republic. And I hope we can reverse it. Uh, another question? Oh, Stephen Duffield. We'll make this our final question. Uh, the congressman just uh, mentioned Alaska, and that's one thing that, Joe, you didn't have a chance to get into. So kind of leaving aside your troubling endorsement of zoning laws is the key to human happiness. <laughs> um, uh, could you... Could you explain why this is not just like Alaska? Because that's something that a lot of people hear on this, and, that, and that's why our, Hawaii, our Alaska senators on the Republican side, and they'll profess this is just like Alaska. That's why we support the Hawaiians on this. Uh, so can you walk through that argument a little sure. bit? Sure. Alaska is actually a great counterexample to um, um, Hawaii and you know, the notion of when do uh, you know, extra-constitutional tribal governments exist. Um, both states enter the Union at the same time. Uh, Hawaii entered the Union in one piece with no separate tribal governments preserved. Alaska actually entered the Union with a clause in its Statehood Enabling Act, like those in many other Western states, saying the state has, the federal government retains absolute jurisdiction and control over Indian lands. And that at the time uh, preserved the, I believe there were several dozen Indian reservations in Alaska. In 1971, when they passed the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act for basically reasons relating to oil, uh, the federal government terminated all the separate jurisdictions, all the uh, tribal reservations, except for one uh, down in southeast, and then um, you know, basically created these private corporations that are chartered under state law, gave um, the corporations um, you know, control over about 44 million acres of Alaska's territory, and then made the um, Alaska natives uh, private shareholders in these corporations. So, you know, yes, there are... You know, you know, there are uh, these entities in, um, in Alaska, but they're private entities chartered under state law, and they're not a separate jurisdiction. Now, in the early 90s, the uh, uh, BIA under um, Senator and President Clinton's first year in office uh, uh, recognized about 226 uh, tribal governments in Alaska. 
And, um, you know, there's a, a question of whether a uh, federal bureaucrat at the stroke of a pen can conjure up 226 extra constitutional entities that aren't bound by the Bill of Rights within an existing state. I'd be of the view that you can't um, and that even if Congress wanted to do that, which at Congress actually did ratify that later, but even Congress can't do that. You just can't do that uh, to a state. And those tribes exist and they're recognized, but they're not separate governments and they're not separate jurisdictions. But frankly, that's a legal issue that um, is still playing out in Alaska and will probably uh, play out for decades to come. But the, again, the main entities, the native corporations, are private entities. Um, they're not a separate government, and they're certainly not an extra-constitutional government. Terrific. Well, Mr. Mittal, uh, Congressman King, thank you very much for being here. We're adjourned. <laughs>